Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 243, A Jewel for Womanhood. Before I start, let me briefly remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, a smorgasbord of independent podcasters. To find out more, go to agorapodcastnetwork.com, and this month, our biography of the month is American Biography by the lovely Tom Daly. So hop along and see that. Last time, we heard about the death of one of England's most influential and talented public servants, Thomas Cromwell. Whether or not you think he was a brutal hatchet man or high-minded visionary. We also heard the rather sad story of Anne of Cleves, dragged over to England for a marriage that ended almost as soon as it started, leaving her all alone and abandoned in a foreign land, and yet coping with it all really rather elegantly. This week is the start of a two-parter on the life and times of Catherine Howard. I confess I had absolutely meant this to be a one-parter, and yet, gentle listeners, I got carried away with the intrigue, incitement, tragedy of it all. If you don't know the story very well and would like to understand more, there's a really good book that came out relatively recently by a chap called Gareth Russell. It's called Young and Damned and Fair, The Life and Tragedy of Catherine Howard at the Court of Henry VIII. If you go to my website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk, you can find a review of said book and a link to buy it, if you wish, from UK or US Amazon as you choose. Just to frame the episode as well, a very quick bit about the stories associated with Catherine. Essentially, the traditional narrative has been one of distaste for Catherine mixed with sympathy for her situation. The story of a sort of airheaded, sexually promiscuous party animal who nonetheless didn't deserve to die with her life unlived. Alongside that traditional narrative is the idea of a second manipulative monster, the third Duke of Norfolk, who is supposed to have consciously hatched the plot to use his attractive niece to ensnare the king and to thereby gain power and influence to destroy the Anne of Cleves marriage and thereby bring down the hated Thomas Cromwell and re-establish the primacy of traditional religion. That story has been challenged as well. It's been pointed out that Catherine was probably very young and argued therefore that she was essentially the victim of sexual abuse which may have affected her personality and sense of self-esteem. And it's been argued that Thomas Howard was almost completely unaware of his niece's existence and we should be subscribing to the theory of history by chance, rather than history by design. Just to make sure we all know where we are time-wise as well, a few key dates for you. Anne of Cleves came ashore right at the end of 1539, and met the cunningly disguised king on New Year's Day 1540. So cunningly disguised, in fact, she didn't recognise him, or maybe just hoped she wasn't marrying that fat bloke with the pig's bladder out of his bottom. On the 9th of July 1540, the marriage between Anne of Cleves and Henry was formally annulled, and on the 28th of July 1540, the king's faithful minister 
Thomas Cromwell went to the block. And on the very same day, as the axe descended through the Tolgy wood, whiffling as it came, Henry was marrying his new sweetheart, aged somewhere between 13 and 24, of which more later. But basically, he was something around about three decades older than his new bride. So that's just to give you an anchor point in your lives. But we don't want to give you that. We want to go backwards in time like Bill and Ted and indulge in a bit of history about the Howard family and where our Catherine came from and where she went. Let me remind you, therefore, of Thomas Howard, the second Duke of Norfolk, the son of the man who had served Richard III so well. You know, Jack of Norfolk, be not too bold and that sort of thing. He was the man, the second Duke, who put the Howe back into the Howards, or the Wards back into the Howes, whatever, who had re-established the family fortunes and died a grand old man in his 80s in the 1520s. But Thomas Howard had not just spent his time restoring the family fortunes, oh no, he had spent a considerable amount of time and an unmentionable amount of effort contributing towards the family gene pool, which by the time of his death in 1524 was broader and deeper than the pool outside Khazad Doom, and filled with monsters every bit as threatening as the one that might or might not have swallowed Bill the Pony for which laboured cultural reference I apologise, but, you know, someone might recognise it. Anyway, 17 children he had, I think, and one of those monsters would be the third Duke, of course, Thomas Howard, who has been so much part of our story with Henry VIII. But among those 17, the third Duke also had a younger brother called Edmund, probably born around 1478. The old Duke had two wives, the second of whom was Agnes Tilney, who from now on shall be called Diego, shall be called the Dowager Duchess, because most of our story occurs after the death of her husband and during the time of her stepson, Thomas III Duke. She's important, is Agnes Tilney, because it is she that rules the household in which Catherine will be brought up for much of her life. Her character and influence has also been much debated. She has been traditionally painted also as failing the young Catherine by managing her household poorly and of making daft decisions when Catherine became queen, carelessly employing servants who had the knowledge to destroy her. Again, as these things go, recently historians have been nicer to her. So, back to Edmund, who as a younger son of a great man, seems to have struggled with that insoluble paradox of the younger sons of the aristocracy, the social necessity of maintaining himself in a state worthy of the pride of his name, and the lack of the wherewithal to do so. He's something of a loser in many ways. He seems to have wasted the wealth and land that he did have, and despite being close to the king in his younger days, Henry marked his card as a reasonable jouster, but likely to be rubbish at everything else. And Edmund rather confirmed that view by being brave, but beaten at the Battle of Flodden. So he was not in the king's good books, or rather, he was in the king's nice but dim books. And you know, the king wasn't a bad judge of these things. Poor old Edmund became increasingly desperate. His letters speak of his pain of not having any money, of being unable to get a job, because to do anything so tawdry as an honest day's toil would bring great reproach and shame to me and all my blood. And at the same time, he had a growing family, yet another substantial contribution to the Howard gene pool by the time he died. There is an edge of humour, though, in his life, which is nice. There's a lovely letter quoted in Gareth Russell's book to the governor of Calais, who'd invited him over to supper. Edmund had had some kidney problems and been unable to wee. 
So, the governor's wife had given him a remedy, which seems to have been a bit too effective. You have made me such a pisser that I dare not go this day abroad. Wherefore, I beseech you to make mine excuse to my lord, for I shall not be with you this day at dinner. Sorry, slightly indelicate, but funny, I thought. There's a good deal more about weeing in his bed, which I decided not to share. Discretion and all of that. Now, you might ask, why Calais? And well, that was due to Anne Boleyn, the saviour of the Howard clan, who managed to get him a job as a financial controller in Calais. Financial controller. A job at which he appears to have been satisfyingly rubbish. You can visualise Edmund as a brave, attractive, humorous, clubbable loser. So, at one point, his colleagues in Calais elected him to the post of mayor of Calais. This appointment came to be ratified by the king. Edmund's name was read out in court. The king, accordingly, laughed full-heartedly, which is nice, and then vetoed it. You can see it, can't you? Ah, Edmund, great! Henry apparently had a surprisingly high voice for a big man. Haven't heard of him for years. <laughs> Edmund, mayor of Calais, lovely! Eh, uh, no. So... Thomas Cromwell was forced to write to the good burghers of Calais that the King's Majesty will in no wise that my Lord Howard be admitted onto the mail tree. Anyway, look at me rabbiting on about Edmund. So, lots of children, one of whom was baptised Catherine. When, exactly, is important. And there is much to and throwing ins and outs, dithering and mathering about said date. We are going to go with a majority view because I'm a majority-compliant, do-what-you're-told kind of guy based around the comment by the French ambassador that Catherine was 18 when she got married. So that'll be a birth date of about 1522 then. And essentially, her father said, money's too tight to mention, so that when appointed to the position in Calais in 1531, he could not take all his family with him. And so he turned to the Howard clan to take his little poppet in. Catherine was therefore taken in around the age of nine or ten into the household of her aunt Agnes. Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, who was a very grand lady in her early fifties, maybe. When her husband had died, he'd made sure that she had plenty of money and property. She maintained large households at Chesworth House near Horsham in Sussex on the south of England, and at Lambeth, just across the river from Whitehall in London. Between these two households, then, the little Catherine would have divided her time and her life. Catherine was not alone in being a girl dependent on the Dowager Duchess's generosity, there were many girls of Catherine's status, and they all shared the Maiden's Chamber, a dormitory in the Great House. Tudor society was strict about contact between men and women. Young women must be accompanied by a chaperone when in the company of a man, and the dormitory was locked every night. There's no reason to suppose that Catherine's years there were anything other than happy, and she'd have had a basic education, being taught to read and write, probably, and to dance, and, of course the inevitable training in good manners that was such an important part of Tudor life. Around about 1536 then, when Catherine was 13 or 14, a young man was employed to teach her the virginal, which is of course a kind of harpsichord. His name was Henry Mannox, and he was about 20 years old. He was a pushy kind of bloke by all accounts, self-confident, and he pretty soon had other objectives as far as Catherine was concerned, more than teaching her to play the virginal. These lessons, it has to be said, were conducted in the company of two men, it's been pointed out, not just Mannox. But nonetheless, a relationship developed between Mannox and Catherine. Among the various claims Mannox would make, the least earthy was probably his claim that he fell in love with Catherine and she with him. To get that far, the two of them would have to have met outside and in secret. 
There seems to have been kissing, cuddling, exchanges of gifts and that sort of thing. Until one day, they were discovered gribbling in an alcove of the chapel by the Dowager Duchess. The chapel, odds bodikins, outrageous. Her behaviour was then absolutely typical of her later behaviour. It was firm and completely ineffectual. She slapped Catherine a couple of times and told her never to meet any man without a chaperone ever again and then forgot all about it while the pair of them went on meeting. Their relationship was soon an open secret, with everyone in the know except the Dowager Duchess, probably. One of the household servants, Mary LaSalle, saw exactly what was going on, and that Mannox was in deep, and might be developing some unrealistic expectations. So, she took it on herself to put him right, telling him that she is come of a noble birth, and if thou should marry her, some of her blood would kill thee. Mannix, though, was unimpressed, as I said, pushy, self-confident. He was pretty direct and reasonably earthy when he replied, I have had her by the... And at this point, gentle listeners, Mr Mannix used a word almost as bad as Belgium. I speak of the thermonuclear word, which is an Anglo-Saxon one, first attested in 1230, by the way, used to describe the female genitalia. I shall not use this word, since this is a family show. Or at least I have some evidence of people have forced their weeping children to listen. Anyway... I have had her by the, well, you know, the, and she hath said to me that I shall have her maidenhood, though it be painful to her, not doubting, but I will be good to her hereafter. Well, this is not terribly charming. It doesn't come from the chivalric lexicon. And when it got back to Catherine, she was far from impressed. So far from impressed that she dumped him, gave him the big E, called the whole thing off. I will never be naught with you, and able to marry me ye be not. Now, this has normally been taken to be the female version of the Mr Darcy approach. You know, I'm so much better than you, I couldn't possibly marry you sort of thing. But there is the intriguing possibility that he was already engaged or even married while he was carrying on with this 13, 14-year-old girl. Able to marry me, ye be not. Maybe he was already engaged. Anyway, Catherine had another chat later in a kind of sort of way with him to let him down gently, what with his broken heart and all but did not let him back into her heart. And anyway, she had an even more interesting squeeze by this time by the name of Francis Derham. Quite sure squeeze is the right word, actually, but this relationship was considerably more serious. Francis Derham had been in the Dowager Duchess's household for a couple of years. She rather liked him. He worked as a secretary for her. He was an offspring of some minor gentry in Lincolnshire and so, unlike Mannox, saw himself as in the running for a serious relationship with the likes of Catherine. But his character has not worn well over the centuries. He comes across as wild, arrogant, volatile, untrustworthy. He was probably 25 years old or so in 1538 when he and Catherine hooked up and Catherine just 16 or so. Derham had already been doing the rounds, including a relationship with one of Catherine's friends in the maiden's chamber, Joan Ackworth. Derham and a mate would find their way into the chamber late at night, bring goodies like wine and treats from the kitchen, and talk until the early hours. If someone came to check out the dormitory, there was a small chamber at the end with a curtain across it where they could hide. It might well have been Catherine herself who had whipped the key and had a copy made, which is naughty, though, like most things about the whole story, is also argued over. While Catherine and Henry Mannix clearly didn't go all the way, as it were, there's equally little doubt that Catherine and Durham went both all the way and all the way there and back again a couple of times. Their companions in the chamber even complained themselves of the noise and the huffing and puffing going on behind the curtain. Such a drag when you're trying to go to sleep. In those days, 
There was, of course, limited privacy, so you had to just get on with it, and so they did. Henry Mannix hated all of it, still wanted to get back together with Catherine. Mary LaSalle, though, was acid with him. Let her alone, for if she hold on as she begins, we shall hear she will be naught in a while. Mary LaSalle was alive to the dangers in a way that Catherine was not, or at least was prepared to risk and ignore, or indeed simply felt she could not escape from. Given that in this, just to remind you once more, in her relationship with Mannix, she was but 13 or 14, and with Deerham, maybe 16. At one point, someone tried to stop this flouting of the rules and left a message for the Dowager Duchess. Go to the maiden's chamber after hours and you will find things you do not like. A friend. That sort of thing. She went. She found. She read the riot act in no uncertain terms and her defenders have noted this and refuted the story that she ran a lax household. But she did not find out about Deerham, which is not necessarily her fault, of course, but if she'd been really on top of things, she might have done rather more digging than just doing the shouty thing. And then she Jen, just let it go. In fact, she did later find Catherine and Deerham wrapped in each other's arms, ineffectually chaperoned by Joan Ackworth. And she did the same thing, a bit of shouting, actually this time with associated slapping and punching, and then no follow-through. In fact, within a short time, she was complicit in this relationship. I'm not saying she was condoning anything like sex, she didn't realise they went that far, but she just refused to look and refused to see what was in front of her. She once remarked when asked for Catherine's whereabouts, I warrant if you seek him in Catherine Howard's chamber, you shall find him there. In the light of the standards of her own day, it's difficult to absolve the Dowager Duchess from blame. She failed to protect those in her charge. She wasn't helped in this by her daughter, also Catherine Howard, the Countess of Bridgewater. The Countess was something of a swashbuckler. You can find an entire shed cast on her comings and goings if you're a member, by the way. She'd raised rebellion in South Wales with her husband, may have taken part in the Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536, had forced her second husband to divorce her. For the Countess, risk and adventure was what it was all about. She didn't even bother to censure the late night goings on. She just warned the girls that it might hurt their beauty. In 1539, though, Catherine was tiring of Deerham. At this time, her father Edmund died in Calais, leaving her an orphan. Her mother Joyce had died back in 1528. Her uncle, Lord William Howard, took up the responsibility to help her, and in 1540, he got her a job at court, and the new household being put together for the future Queen Anne. Catherine was in all likelihood over the moon bill, and it prompted her to break it off with Francis. I think it's fair to say he didn't take it well and remained in denial. As far as he was concerned, Catherine was the one. Catherine belonged to him. There were different versions of this. Deerham seems to have constructed a reality where Catherine had wept helplessly that her family were making her do this. Catherine, on the other hand, says she lost her temper with his continual pleadings and told him he could do what he list. Who knows? But whatever the truth, Deerham didn't think he was finished yet. Now, in 1541, Catherine, in extremis and threat of her life, would describe this period as one where she was repeatedly raped by Deerham. And I guess we should come to that discussion about how this period of her life should be viewed. Is it that Catherine was a sensual and promiscuous person, emotionally precocious, a willing, consensual partner in these relationships? Or was she a victim of male predators? And whether or not she was really raped, she was nonetheless a vulnerable young teenager, preyed on by much older men, and she was let down by her guardians, who were supposed to protect her. 
and that her later behaviour was then shaped and damaged by this experience. Just to give you the views of two commentators on opposing sides. Gareth Russell's view is that all the evidence points to Catherine being a willing and consensual partner and being in control of events and herself. That in Tudor times, sex at 13 even was considered acceptable, though true enough only in the context of marriage. And she does seem to know her own mind. It's she that ends both relationships. She appears to be in control. Her accusation of rape against Deerham seems to be very questionable, actually. Catherine herself changed her story very quickly. And that looks much more like a desperate attempt to save herself. So, that's one viewpoint. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. On the other hand, historian Gerard de Groot argues this. While the Tudors might not have frowned upon the idea of an adult male fondling a 13-year-old girl, there's no escaping the fact that she was a child, incapable of responsible decisions about sex. Catherine was attractive precisely because she was waif-like and virginal. Through the ages, men have found these qualities irresistible. The constant here is the child's vulnerability. Tudor males preyed on that vulnerability, while we now protect the child. He argues that Catherine's early sexual experience here led to a sense of low self-esteem, and this low self-esteem then made her vulnerable to the handsome Culpepper when her relationship with Henry proved unsatisfactory. You get to choose, I think. It's not clear how Catherine came to Henry's attention. The traditional story, of course, is that Norfolk and Gardiner spot her and, seeing Henry's reaction to Anne of Cleves, they push her forward into the limelight, thrusting her forward in front of Henry's lascivious eyes. The Dowager Duchess's recollections suggest that it was a bit more simple than that, actually. Catherine just caught Henry's eye at court. QED, sic bisquitus disintegrat. But then she would say that, wouldn't she? However, Norfolk himself doesn't seem to have known anything about Catherine, and far from pushing her forward, and it had been William Howard who had gained her position at court, not the Duke of Norfolk. And finally, it is hard to see the family deciding to use Catherine as bait, quite apart from how horrid they'd have had to have been, because her past sexual history would have ruled her out. And the Countess of Bridgewater, at least, would have been well aware of her history and would have handed out a warning. In general, I'm inclined to believe in the cock-up theory of history rather than the conspiracy theory one, and therefore that Norfolk and Gardiner were as surprised as anyone when the king started showing an interest. Once they did know, it is equally difficult to suppose that they did not encourage it. The king was seen taking late-night trips across the river, there to be entertained in feasts with both the Bishop of Winchester, Gardiner, and at Norfolk's house under the pretense of visiting the Dowager Duchess, an excuse which drew snorts from everyone. Anna Cleves herself noticed the attraction, and in June 1540 her ambassador complained of it to Henry, and suggested that it had been going on for months. It's not clear if Catherine was coached in the now accepted and well-travelled only-when-you-put-a-ring-on-it methodology, but certainly that's where we ended up. So I am also inclined to think that whether or not the Howards first plotted to throw Catherine into Henry's path, 
it makes not that much difference because once it was so, they actively encouraged the relationship. In short, the smell drifting up from their memories does not waft rose-like around the nostrils of historical inquiry. From Henry's point of view, of course, it's easy to see the attraction. Catherine was lively, attractive and a reasonably forceful character. Meanwhile, he'd just felt let down and sexually impotent with Anne, so here was a chance to prove himself. And it did indeed have an impact. He did the 16th century equivalent of the 40-year-old's purchase of a Porsche drop-top, becoming much more active, taking up a fitness regime, taking up hunting again. By August 1540, just a few weeks after Anne had been sent packing, Henry and Catherine were married at Hampton Court. Catherine was still just 18 years old. Let us be clear, Henry was convinced that he was marrying a virgin and no one disabused him of this notion. So, what the feelings of Catherine, the Dowager Duchess and the Countess were at the marriage, who knows. But abject terror could have been one, as well as joy and happiness, of course. Now, it might be thought that if Catherine was this very young, airheaded type, then her period as Queen would have been something of an embarrassment. But this seems not to be the case. Although with such a short time, evidence is of course in short supply, but actually it's reasonably convincing that Catherine would have made more than a half-decent queen. She seems to have had a very serviceably Tudor combination of charm and steel. The Princess Mary, however, was not impressed with the new queen. It could well be that it was her age, since she was probably six years Mary's junior. It could have been yet another unseemly divorce from Anne, Mary was still now a fully accepted and reconciled member of the royal household. There was a tussle, therefore, wherein, essentially, Catherine threatened to withdraw two ladies from Mary's household, at which point Mary came into line. Thereafter, Catherine seems to have encouraged the relationship between both herself and Henry with both Mary and Elizabeth. Catherine's basic impulse seems to have been towards kindness, but she was no doormat. She had an elegance and simplicity which worked very well in a potentially hideously socially awkward situation, certainly one for which I'd find a sudden and unavoidable excuse to avoid, namely when Anne of Cleves came to call. On this occasion, Catherine played a straight bat to Anne's overly formal obeisance to the new queen, simply accepting them, raising her up from her deep, deep curtsy and getting on with supper in an open and friendly way. Chapuis related that they kept as good a mean in countenance and looked as unconcerned as if there had been nothing between them. Catherine had other characteristics which played well to the roles and duties of the Queen. She was as fervent a lover of finery as any Tudor, and as we've discussed many times, while this might be considered something of a fault in our modern world view, she happened to have landed the one job where actually this vice could be turned into a virtue. She looked a Queen and she behaved like a queen. She famously adopted the more fashionable French hood. She was well-mannered. She could dance well, knew her music. She could preside over the kind of court that Henry wanted to be part of, and which added to England's reputation. And meanwhile, she had no axe to grind at all as far as religion was concerned, no interest as far as we can see, and therefore she was no object of division. And finally, we have seen already that a major role of the queen was as a mediator and a bringer of peace. This was, of course, the time of Cromwell's fall, and with his fall, Cranmer daily expected that he too would feel the edge of the axe on his neck. Just before the wedding with Henry, Catherine had sought to reassure him in a letter where she told him that he was absolutely safe. You should be in better case than ever you were, she wrote. It could be that Catherine was being absurdly optimistic about the amount of influence she could have over events, but equally, 
It could simply be that she had grown to understand her husband-to-be's attitude towards Cranmer. But it was nice of her either way to reassure him. And then in 1541, once she was queen, Thomas Wyatt the poet and Thomas Cromwell fan was imprisoned on charges of treason. It seems that either Catherine argued on his behalf or she was used as a way of pardoning Wyatt and give Henry an elegant way of extracting himself from the situation without looking weak. Either way, it brought a splash of kindness to Tudor government. Her talents were shown off to their best advantage during the Tour of the North, which Henry undertook in 1541. You might remember that Henry had promised to visit the North after the Pilgrimage of Grace and hold a Parliament there, and then he'd not turned up, very probably bottling it in the wake of the violence. But in the spring of 1541, he announced that he would now travel to the North. There were probably a few reasons for this. One was his recovery from a bout of illness that had sent him away from Catherine and the court into his private apartments as the ulcer flared up, and it was continually and painfully drained. As his spirits recovered, so did his desire to show his country that he still had it in him. And then he wanted to finish that pilgrimage of grace thing off, put it to bed in his mind, and formally receive the submission of the people and counters that had risen against their prince so unnaturally in his view. And then there was also a diplomatic reason. He had written to the Scottish king, James V, who was, of course, his sister Margaret's son. That is called a nephew, isn't it? Ace. Henry gave James an avuncular and ever so slightly patronising advice about how to do his job. I say ever so slightly. What I mean, of course, is incredibly patronising. His aim seems to have been to convince James to move closer to England diplomatically by following a similar course in religion. His letter, carried by Ralph Sadler, heartily recommended dissolving the monasteries as a jolly good way of raising some cash and of preventing the church from becoming a state within a state. Now, James was conflicted. Actually, his personal viewpoint about religion didn't seem much conflicted at all. He fully supported the traditional church and supported Archbishop St Andrew's Beaton in burning Protestant heretics, one of whom, Patrick Hamilton, was burned outside St Salvator's Chapel in St Andrew's in 1521, his initials are designed into the cobblestones. To my shame, I do not think I realised that when I was at university there, and I can visualise them now. Shame on me. There were so many other distractions. Anyway, the point is, James V was a pretty firm supporter of the traditional church and of the alliance with France. But he did not want to annoy his southern neighbour. So, James had been pressured into suggesting that, yes, maybe it would be nice to meet with Henry. And so Henry had suggested York. The vast procession moved in grand style and glacial speed to Northamptonshire, to Lincoln and into Yorkshire via Pontefract, and thence finally to York. When he arrived in Lincoln and again at Pontefract in Yorkshire, there were grand submissions by the miserable subjects of his great majestiness. For example, in Yorkshire, the citizens who had remained loyal were royally received with much cheering and bonhomie, well done, and all that sort of thing. While all the backslapping and kissy-kissy stuff was going on, he tried very hard to avoid eye contact with another crowd of people kneeling on the ground off to the side. This was Henry's equivalent of the naughty step, and all of those who, in Henry's view, had not passed the loyalty test. They waited patiently and in a slightly loose-boweled sort of way for their prince's pleasure. And it was not just the common or garden folks. Among them was the Archbishop of York, no less, so it was licorice. Eventually, 
they were allowed to make their submission, and they handed over big bundles of written submissions describing just what miserable wretches they were. And once they'd grovelled in a suitably grovelly kind of way, their prince graciously received them back into his grace. All right, all right. Phew. This was all very satisfactory to Henry. He was beginning to like the North that he'd avoided for so long. And so on to York, where the old Abbey of St Mary had been completely refurbished to make a suitable palace for the king, where he could meet with the King of Scots when he arrived. And so Henry waited. And he waited. And then, when a minute passed, he waited some more. And then, a minute which seemed like a lifetime but was in fact just a minute, passed. And finally, he was forced to accept that the King of Scots had thumbed his nose at his uncle, probably muttered something about his mother smelling of elderberries before turning back to his French mates. He was more than a little humiliating. Henry had been stood up in front of the eyes of the world, and worse, in the face of Yorkshiremen, and nobody wants to be humiliated in the eyes of God's own county. So he went home. On the plus side, though, throughout the progress of the North, Catherine played her role to perfection, accompanying the king always, her grace and emollience, smoothing the difficulties of public occasions, always present, but never detracting from the ceremonies and from the king. The French ambassador related that the king went in progress with his queen, who began to have great influence on him. And so, when they arrived back from the progress in October 1541, the council was able to report the king's perfect happiness with his wife, that he'd obtained, and I quote, a jewel for womanhood in Catherine, praising her virtue and good behaviour. As far as Henry was concerned, he had crossed the stormy seas of love and marriage. He'd crawled from the broken wreckage of the accompanying horse and carriage and had arrived at the safe harbour of pipe and slippers wearing loveliness at last. The French ambassador wrote, the king is so amorous of her that he cannot treat her well enough. So this is all very good, isn't it? Despite Catherine's past and despite her youth and the rather fat and now unattractive man she'd had to marry, she was turning out to have something of a talent for the job. Excellent. There were all those worries about her past, but she couldn't possibly be the only person in the world with her past. And really, it was in everybody's interests to keep quiet about it. So as long as she kept her head... She'd keep her head, as it were. Next time, we'll see how that goes for her. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. <laughs>